This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book and is number 31 of the series entitled The Form of Sound Words. In this study, we have not merely the form of sound words, but we have a very definite principle of interpretation introduced into the scriptures by the apostle, which we go, we give the term right division. We've already read 2 Timothy chapter 2 to the 15th verse. I'll read the verse which includes this principle. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now I'm very conscious that those who are forming this little congregation in the chapel, they're very well acquainted with this principle. It's been put into operation in practically all our expositions, all our writings and all our teaching, although we don't say the word right division at every time. It's a principle. We are not saved by right division and the word of God is the, it's the rightly dividing the word of truth that matters. Right division is merely a principle. You know how the boy was tricked, don't you? Uh, when somebody said, would you like the first cut? And he said, yes please, well he got nothing. See? You must do it twice to get a piece. We're rightly dividing the word of truth, but the principle is right division. First of all, a word or two with the way in which this is introduced. Study. There are some people boggle at the word study. They said, oh, I'm no student. Well, this is a workman that's being addressed, friends. A workman. Not a student in the sense that we think about thick glasses and bald heads and bowed backs and so on. He's a workman. And the word study is the word which is used by the apostle when he said, do thy diligence to come quickly. Diligence. It's the word used in the epistle to the Ephesians, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit. So you see, you don't have to have a wrong top desk to do this. This is diligence, endeavour, a workman dealing with sacred, of course, truth, study. And your first great object is not to make yourself popular or do anything in the way of service to others. Your first duty as a workman is to see that you satisfy him who employs you. Study to show thyself approved unto God. And if you glance at chapter 3, it says, um, verse 8, Now as Jans and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the truth. That's just the opposite to the word approved. It's the word disapproved. And they're put in, in connection, you see. So here are the two classes. Those who, like Timothy, was a workman that was approved of God, and those who, like those who withstood Moses and opposed the truth, they were reprobate or disapproved. And the word uh, translated uh, approved is a word that means to test and try a metal to see whether it is genuine. So you see, it's a good word, isn't it? And now we come to the the essence of this passage, rightly dividing the word of truth. Of course, there are several ways of attaining the meaning of this expression. You can look up where Alford and Bloomfield and uh, Ellicott and 
all the other commentaries, and by the time you've done, instead of being enlightened, you'll be confused, because one says it means cutting your pathway through, another one, oh, it says all sorts of things. When you say to me, well, how do you know about it? Are you better than all these men? Say, no, I'm simpler than all these men. I say to myself, when Timothy received this letter from the Apostle Paul in the first case, when he received it, what did he understand when he read it? Did he have to go hunting round bookshelves and dictionaries and whatnot to find out what it meant? Well, I'm positive he didn't. You say, how, do you, how are you so positive? Well, he tells me in this epistle that he had a very godly grandmother and mother, Christian people. Although his mother was a Jewish, she was also a Christian. But his father was a Greek and they lived in Asia Minor and they lived in Asia Minor just about the time of Christ. Well, if we know anything at all, we know this, that the only Bible that Timothy had in that household was the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's practically certain that nobody like Timothy and his mother at that time would have been able to have read the Hebrew Bible. But the Greek translation called the Septuagint was universally used. It is quoted just as many times in the New Testament as the original Hebrew, and once or twice where it differs from the original Hebrew, it is quoted in the New Testament instead. And I think when you know that Christ himself quoted it quite a number of times, it shows you that it's most valuable to remember that that was in existence 300 years before Christ. It was the Bible of that people. Well now, if you will turn with me, as most of you know I was going to do this, I hope, to Proverbs chapter 3, we know that young Timothy was almost certain to have been directed by his mother to the book of Proverbs as a part of his training, his upbringing. You remember it says that from a child he knew the Holy Scriptures, which were able to make him wise unto salvation. And a Jewish mother, bringing up her little son, would have certainly directed his attention to the Proverbs, but have so many words of wisdom to guide a young person. So in chapter 3, verse 6, we read these words. Oh, verse 5 and 6, they go together. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall rightly divide thy paths. That is what Timothy would read. He would read the identical word that was put by Paul in the letter to him. Well now it doesn't need great scholarship to rightly divide your paths. I'm not uh, speaking slightingly of folks who uh, drive a car. I'm only too thankful that they do. Uh, but it doesn't need uh, scholastic training to notice the signpost on the road. If you know where you're going, if you know your object, you know that that's pointing in the wrong direction, or this one says, now you've come to a fork in the road, take the left instead of the right. That's all it means. You haven't got to be any further along the line of education or, or training, but the ability to read a signpost. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall rightly divide thy paths. You come to the Bible, and you say, 
Now, my, I've got a lot here. Look at the, look at the pathways that are here. Well, I don't think I've ever been to connect you with the giving of the Lord at Sinai. I don't think God ever made a covenant with my fathers. I never heard about it. In fact, I don't know who my fathers were. Very few of us can go back very far, but these people in the Bible in the old days, oh my, they got their pedigree right back to Abraham. And they had two. But when I come to a passage in the New Testament that says that at that time you were aliens and strangers having no covenant relationship without Christ, without God, without hope, I said, oh, that's me right enough. To the other people, the same apostle said, to you pertained the adoption and the fathers and the covenants and the giving of the law. I said, never true of me. So you see, I come to the I come to these scriptures like that, and it's rightly divided for me. I say I'm a Gentile. I don't claim the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't take to myself all the things that God said of the people of Israel. I'm a Gentile. Where do I come in? All you come in through one man's ministry. Who's that? Paul is the only man in the New Testament who is called the apostle of the Gentiles. We're not magnifying Paul. It was Christ who ordained him. So if you turn away from Paul, you turn away from him, for he gave this principle. He said, He that receiveth me, receiveth not me, but receiveth him that sent me. So we're only saying that we are recognising the sovereignty of Christ, who chose one man and said, Now, he is the man to bear my name before the Gentiles. Doesn't it seem just ordinary common sense? not an own spiritual intuition, that if one man in all the lot that's mentioned in the New Testament was set apart to be the minister to Gentiles, doesn't it seem reasonable to listen to what he says? Well, that's more, that's more or less what we're trying to say. So here we have then this principle of right division. Well, now the principle of right division doesn't mean making a scatter and a chaos. Supposing we have a basket filled with both apples and oranges together. Well, now you say to somebody, will you rightly divide them? Well, you wouldn't expect them to throw them all over the floor, would you? You would put one lot in basket there, there are all apples, one in basket there, there are oranges. Now you've got them under your control. Will you do that with the scriptures? You're not throwing anything away. You're only putting them in their different baskets so that you'll not confuse those things that differ. Now there are some folks and we must respect this aspect, although it may be a dangerous one from one angle, they say to you, you know, I'm not so much concerned what the Apostle Paul said. I, I believe what Christ said. Say, good, good, but there are some things Christ said that you've never done and never will do because it was said in a different period. But let that by for a minute. All right, I say, all right. If I can show you that our Saviour himself rightly divided the word of truth, would that help you? Well, it would. All right then. Shall we go to the Gospel according to Luke? The Gospel according to Luke. And here we have the beginning of our Saviour's ministry. And we start at verse 16. Luke 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. Now according to the teaching of Moses Maimonides, a great rabbi, who did a lot with regard to coordinating the services of the synagogue, he said a reading of scripture should comprise roughly about 25 verses. It might be a few more, it might be a few less, and that's reasonable, isn't it? Well, you see, the synagogue have been expecting our Saviour to read about 20 verses. So what did he do? He read one verse, and one sentence in the next verse, shut the book and sat down, and friends, they all sat up. Because I suddenly say, hey, what's this? This is something new. He closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now you say, what's this all about? Well, supposing you turn back to the prophet Isaiah itself and see what he actually had in front of him and you had in front of you. Then see what he did. This is the 61st chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. And quite apart from our subject this afternoon, Will you notice that the quotation that we have in Luke 4 is almost word for word with the passage we have in Isaiah 61? And you know that when they discovered these ancient scrolls out in the Dead Sea district, they discovered the scroll of the, of the prophet Isaiah. And if they had found that the text of the prophet Isaiah in that scroll differed essentially from what we have, you'd have had headlines all over the newspapers. But when they patiently unfolded it and deciphered it and translated it, it said exactly the same as we've got in the authorised version. Well, that's no news at all, is it? You know the idea in the newspaper world. If a dog bites a man, that's not news, but if a man bites a dog, it is. So that nobody was told by the newspapers in great headlines, the word of God still maintained and true, but we must remember that. That, the, that all the findings they have in all these manuscripts bringing them to light just exactly the same as we have here. Now then, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison of them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God. Oh, wait a minute. Don't you see what our Lord did? He stopped at the words, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And shut the book, and said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. If he'd said one more sentence, the day of vengeance of our God, he couldn't have said this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears? Because that isn't true. Well now, there's been a mischievous misinterpretation. I remember when I was crossing um, to Canada in the ship, I attended the service. It was conducted by a minister. 
I thought, oh my, isn't this good? He's taking this very principle of right division. He drew attention to the fact that Isaiah 61 says that and Luke says that. And then if he didn't say, you see, in the Old Testament, they had an idea of a day of vengeance, but our Saviour didn't believe that. He left it out. Oh, that's what he did with that. But will you look at the 21st chapter of Luke's Gospel? 21st chapter. There is, we have the parallel to the prophetic chapter 24 of um, Matthew. And here we have in these verses, verse 20 onwards, And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Same gospel, same gospel of Luke, says, although he, our Saviour left out the days of vengeance when he started his ministry, he included them when he was coming to the end of his ministry and said, all are going to be fulfilled. But he rightly divided the word of truth and he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So that's what we mean by it. So you see, you must be prepared to discover that some people will tell you that you're dividing the word of God up, you're cutting it up in pieces, you're setting some of it aside. You say, not so, not so. Our Saviour set nothing aside. But he recognised that he couldn't say that this day it's being fulfilled in your ears when he was coming to preach the acceptable year of the Lord because the day of vengeance was yet future and has yet to come. So we lose nothing, we gain so much more if we put this into practice. Well now, of course, there are many ways in which this must be applied. There are two great divisions of the human race recognised in the Bible. Jew and Gentile. The Jew covers the twelve tribes of Israel, but there are some who would say that it must never be used of any other than the twelve tribes, but the Apostle Paul called himself a Jew, and he was a Benjaminite, and Peter called himself a Jew, and he was a Galilean, so they didn't need the instruction, it became a universal title. So, speaking largely, and without first going into details, the Bible recognised Two divisions in the human race, the Jew and the Gentile. Now the Jew occupies the bulk of the Old Testament. The people of Israel, descending from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, all the promises made in the prophets, and giving of the law and the various other features, occupy the bulk of the Old Testament. Gentile nations have a place but they are they have a place in association with the people of Israel when they also are a nation blessed by God in the earth. You get the burden of Babylon, the burden of Tyre, and burden of Babylon, and so on. Or oh, did I say that twice? Yes, never mind. Uh, but when we come to the New Testament, it becomes to a bit more important to us because I'm going to quote from the from the Apostle Paul, the Epistle to the Romans. He said, "Now I say." that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision 
for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. If that's not explicit, what is? He never said a single word about founding a church. The Apostle Paul said that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. Well, you say, where do I come in then? You don't come in, that's the point. In the Gospel according to Matthew, in chapter 10, he said, go not into the way of the Gentiles. And so everybody shuts their eye to that and they say, we go. We go to the Gentiles. Well, you should go to the Gentiles, but not with Matthew 10. You don't go preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom. The Lord said, when you go preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom, with signs and miracles following, go not into the way of the Gentiles. I am not sent, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Could it be more plainly stated? And yet people will read that and take it all to themselves. Well, you say, what can you do with them? You can't do anything. You can only pray for them that God may open their eyes to see that that's not handling the word of God aright. When we come to the gospel according to John, we reach a gospel which has the world as its parish. Instead of limiting its ministry to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, this is God so loved the world. And that is applicable to this day. And if a person believes the simple testimony of John's gospel, he that hath the Son hath life. Then, as our Lord said to Nicodemus, if you have believed these earthly things that I've started with, you may go on to the super heavenly things. And the one who's speaking to you just now was brought into salvation by a text from John's ministry, He that hath the Son hath life. And I had no more knowledge about rightly dividing the word of truth or the dispensation of the mystery than the man in the moon. But it didn't stop me from going on. So we have a ministry, one part of the, God, of the earthly life and ministry of Christ has been reserved so that it can go out into all the world and its insistence is life. It doesn't tell you where you're going to enjoy that life. It doesn't speak about inheriting the earth or going to the heavenly Jerusalem. It simply says life. And you've got to wait until God, the disposer of all his benefits, gives them their place. They've got one right enough. But isn't it wonderful to think that poor, outside, impoverished Gentiles should have life through his name? That's the beginning and the necessary entry to all blessing. So when we come say, to the epistle to the Galatians, we see that the Apostle Paul was very concerned about that which had been entrusted to him. In the second chapter of Galatians, he said he went up to Jerusalem to lay before them that gospel which he preached among the Gentiles. Well, if you read it, you say, well, does that mean to say that some of them were preaching some other gospel? Oh, no, 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 somebody says, there's only one gospel. Is that so? I read the gospel of the kingdom. I read the everlasting gospel in the book of the Revelation. And the everlasting gospel is fear God and give glory to him who created the heavens and the earth and the fountains of waters. Nothing whatever to do with Jesus Christ and him crucified or risen. Is that the gospel you preach? So that's one, isn't it? No, no, you see, good news may have various aspects. They all eventually refer back to the work of Christ, but they've got different outgoings. So, he said, I went up to Jerusalem to lay before them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. And when he had an interview with Peter and James and John, he said, those who seem to be pillars, and then he said, those who seem to be somewhat, oh, aren't you rude, Paul? He said, I am. 
When they interfere with a gospel that's entrusted to me, I'll call the worst names of that if necessary. What he said in chapter 1 was almost impossible to think a Jew would say. You and I have never been brought up, up under the ministry and protection of angels. I don't know whether as children you had four corners to your bed and Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and all that business, but the people of Israel, they had their whole history connected with angelic ministry. So the moment you open the epistle to the Hebrews, you've got angels waiting for you in the first chapter and in the second chapter. Oh yes. Now Paul, who knew all that, he said, though an angel from heaven should preach any other gospel than I've preached, let it be anathema. And then he says, in case you think I've lost my temper, I'll say it all over again as I said it before. So it's very necessary that we remember that there are more gospels than one. And we ought to say, which gospel have I got to preach? Well, are you a Gentile? Yes. Are you preaching to Gentiles? Yes. We'll take the tip from the apostle of the Gentiles. So he said in chapter 2, he went up to Jerusalem and he laid before those who were somebodies and somewhats. And they recognised it, said that just as surely as Peter had been given the apostleship to the circumcision, so Paul had been given the apostleship of the uncircumcision. And one had got the gospel to the one people, and one had got the gospel to the other, and they gave it to Paul and Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship, and there they agreed that there were two distinct presentations of the gospel because of the differences between the callings that were involved either in Peter's ministry, who spoke about a royal priesthood and a holy nation, and Paul's ministry, who had nothing to do with priesthood at all, but had to do with an entirely different calling. So there we have the need to rightly divide the word of truth. Now, I don't often mention in these tape recordings that we have a, a whole series of books, but I'm not advertising for the sake of advertising, because all these books have been written to help those who are listening to this tape recording. So it just happens that I have in my hand a little booklet here that has been written by a Miss Moore at Preston, and it's called The Address on the Envelope. The Address on the Envelope. And as you go through it, it says on the, uh, the, first, uh, the first illustration that comes, it says, a first letter is written to Mr. Jew, tribe of whatever it might be, House of Israel, Covenant Square, Jerusalem. That's addressed, you see. Well, oh, she goes on with regard to that sort of thing. Then you've got another one. Mr. Gentile, number one, Circumcision Avenue, Commonwealth of Israel, Jerusalem. So Gentiles began to be blessed according to that aspect of ministry. Then she's got another one. Mr. Hebrew Christian, Stock of Abraham, Faith Entrance, New Covenant Square, Jerusalem. Then she's got another one. Mr. Save Gentile, Stock of Abraham, Faith Entrance, New Covenant Square, Jerusalem. Mr. Hebrew Christian, Stock of Abraham, Overcomers Entrance, Heavenly City, New Jerusalem. Mr. Gentile and Mr. Jew, Faith Entrance, In the Heavenlies in Christ, at the right hand of God, far above all. So she's got all sorts of letters addressed to them, you see. And she says, why not read the envelope before you read the letter? Now, to illustrate that, notice the, the way in which James has addressed his envelope. The epistle of James. 
most of you know it already, but we want to make it obvious. And do, do remember that the name James in the original is the word Jacob. Uh, of course, that's nothing new to us. We speak of Jacobean furniture to do with the reign of King James. So it's Jacob, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Well, as far as we know, that letter never came back and said, unknown. He sent it to twelve tribes that were among the dispersion. And Peter uses the same word, uh, you might just check that, the first of Peter, the next epistle, first of Peter, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Now, James says they were scattered abroad. That's pretty wide, isn't it? But Peter's letter is addressed to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And yet people tell me that the tribes are lost. Well, how on earth James and Peter could write to the scattered tribes of Israel and say that some of them were at Pontus and some were at Galatia and some were at Bithynia and then they say, oh no, 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 the tribes of Israel are all lost. The lost ten tribes. And if you look at back, at, back at Acts 26, you'll find that Paul's also included in this. He's speaking to King Agrippa and he reminds King Agrippa that he's, he said in verse 2, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be expert in all the customs and questions which are among the Jews. So he was speaking to someone who knew all about Jewish history. And in the very presence of that man, he says, verse 7, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. Our twelve tribes. But Paul, don't you know that ten of them are lost? Agrippa, don't you know that ten of them are lost? James, don't you know that ten of them are lost? Peter, what ignorant people these were. How can you possibly maintain that the ten tribes of Israel are lost and then dig them up and make them into the British nation when here, at that very time, the Apostle Paul says our twelve tribes instantly at this present moment serve God and James and Peter sent a letter to them and it was evidently delivered. Well, we're not going to bother about this, but don't you see what mischief can be done if once we allow people to take you by the nose and lead you which way they wish? Well now, for the rest of our time, we haven't got a great deal left, let's come back to Second Timothy, chapter 2, and notice how this principle of interpretation must be employed all the way we read Scripture everywhere. It isn't merely what we might call to distinguish dispensations and, and prophecies of that. It's, it's the principle that you must apply all the time. So we'll look at chapter 2, and when I get to the end of time, I'll leave off, although there'll be plenty more illustrations left, possibly in this one chapter. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. The things that thou hast heard of me, the same commit thou. That's right division. He didn't say to Timothy, now Timothy, you know the Bible, you were trained by your mother in the Old Testament scriptures, well that's good enough, you go on preaching the Old Testament. He never said that to him. 
And he didn't say, well, you know that Peter has been preaching and James has been preaching. You better, you better follow them. He didn't say that. He said, the things that thou hast heard of me, the same commit thou. And he's referring back to verse 12, uh, verse 11. In chapter 1, Paul says, Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. That's plain enough, isn't it? For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which has been committed against that day. And it doesn't say he committed it to me or I committed it to him. That's a bit added. It's this thing which has been committed by the Lord that he was able to keep. And immediately he follows it. He says, now then, you have a form of sound words which you have heard of me. And in verse 14, that good thing which was committed unto thee, keep. So here's a special committal, a special trust, a special aspect of doctrine and teaching which the apostle said that Timothy must have. But not only Timothy. The same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Well, it looks as though this is apostolic succession. This will upset some people, of course, because they think that unless they go back to Peter, and Peter's hands were placed upon some bishop, and that bishop comes right down, you haven't got this. Well, here, here's an apostolic succession that I need, friends. I'm, I'm trying to do the very thing that the apostles said. Make this particular aspect of truth known, and seek to be faithful in its ministry. All right, let's look again. Supposing we come down to verse 8 of chapter 2. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. According to my gospel. Leave that out. Now, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead. So, well, that's right. We can find that mentioned in the uh, gospels. We find that emphasized in the early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles. Yes. Ah, but he said, I'm not saying that. What, have you got another Christ? Oh, no. The same Christ. The same David. But a resurrection that wasn't to raise this Christ to sit upon the throne of his father, David, but to sit upon the universal throne far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, that's a wider dominion than ever David will rule over. He says it's the same Christ who was the descendant of the same David. But do remember, Timothy, that he was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer. Because I've insisted upon this, I've got into the desperate trouble I am now. But he says, I'm glad that the word of God is not bound. Well now, the next point is, for right division, he says, I suffer trouble as an evildoer, therefore I endure all things for the elect sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation, and you want to put a stress on that word, the, they may also obtain that salvation which is in Christ Jesus, accompanied with eternal glory. Not merely salvation, you see, not just plain salvation, if you can so call it, but a salvation which is associated with glory. And he goes on to explain. He says it's a faithful saying, if we died with him, we shall also live with him. And there's no if about it. There's no conditions about it. If anybody is reckoned to have, been, to have died with Christ, that's a finished thing. Nothing on earth or heaven can stop you living with him. 
But he said, I want you to notice the next step. If we suffer, and this word doesn't mean so much suffering, but patient endurance. If we patiently endure, we shall also, now also means something added, doesn't it? Something added to living. What is it? We shall reign with him. Now surely reigning is something added to living. It isn't everybody who is reigning in this country who is living. In fact, there's only one person who's reigning, and that's the present queen. We're all living. Shall is she? But she's got an additional element. She's got the crown. Don't you see? There's, it's one thing to be saved and have life. And it's another thing to be sure of a crown. And the Apostle Paul said he wasn't sure about it until he wrote this epistle. And if you'll turn the page to chapter 4, he says, verse 6, I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith henceforth that is laid up for me a crown. Oh yes, he's got it at last. So he says, it's one thing to know that you will live with him. And even if you are faithless and deny him, you'll never deny himself. He'll never take away your life. But you may forfeit your crown. In fact, you'll never get the crown to forfeit, you see. So we get the same principle in 1 Corinthians 3. On the one foundation, you're building. Now, you're building the material will go up in flames or it will stand the test. But you yourself shall be saved, yet suffers by fire. You yourself shall be saved, yet you may suffer loss, but you never can be lost. So, here's a distinction again, right division between living with him and reigning with him. And then, turning to the um, sequel after verse 15, he says... um, of certain ones, he, they, he's got to beware. Verse 17, their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenius and Philetus, who concerning the truth have heard. Now it is the truth involved, you see. Saying that the resurrection, now what do they say about the resurrection? Did they say the resurrection never took place? No. They didn't deny the resurrection. They simply put it in the wrong time. And that's wrong division. They said the resurrection was past already. Now, they couldn't have been referring to the resurrection of Christ, but blessed be God, that is past already. So they must have been referring to the resurrection of God's people. And they said the resurrection was past already and upset some of them. What they taught, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not able to tell you. But it was a muddle and a mix-up with regard to the great hope of God's people. So you see, the sheer fact of mistaking the time, past already, it was eating like a canker and overthrowing the faith of some. And then lastly, he says, in a great house, verse 20, there are not only of gold and of silver, but of wood and of earth, and some to honour, and some with no honour. Don't say dishonour, because that's wrong. There's nothing dishonourable about a teapot, or a cup and a saucer. But it's not that treasured piece that you keep in the glass case in the drawing room. You see? So you may be in the one house and you may be meat for the master's use. You may be a special vessel unto him or you may be an ordinary one. It's an honour to be an ordinary one in the house of God at all. So there's where we leave it except I want now to mention one other book 
as I mentioned, the one of Miss Moore. I mentioned him another one that was printed about nearly 50 years ago. It's called United Yet Divided. And that goes through this question of the application of right division uh, in many ways, which I think if you have not acquainted yourself with it, you would find valuable. And these books can, of course, be obtained through Mr. Canning in this country or Oscar Baker in America.